0: All right. Well, David and his family are on the way to Alabama to serve <clears throat> at Hope Heels Camp this week. They're actually on the road this week. The Kinovchinskis have been there. This is, I think, their third week. Petty Johns were there last week, so uh, it's a wonderful thing. I'm sure they would love to tell you more about it um, if you're interested in it at all, but they're traveling, and so I want to pray for them before we get going. And, uh, and then we'll, we'll get into chapter 19 here of 2 Samuel. So let me pray. Lord, thank you for, again for our time. And uh, thank you for David and, and his work here and his teaching us your word and, and uh, his faithfulness to your people. And so, Lord, I pray now that you would watch over them as they travel, that you would keep them safe, that you would keep their car working, that you would uh, just help them to arrive and give them stamina for the week to just serve well and uh, to, to be a blessing to those that they encounter. And uh, we pray this in Christ's name, amen. Uh, so, this morning again, we're in chapter 19, continuing the uh, saga that is David's life. And if you remember last week, the, the rebellion that was put forth by Absalom, David's son, uh, comes to an end. David's men defeat Absalom. Uh, Absalom seemingly gets his hair caught in a tree uh, Joab and his men come and, and kill him and take care of him, and of course David is beside himself. Uh, Absalom has done David wrong and, and, and rebelled against David and his kingdom. David deeply, deeply loved Absalom, but Absalom deeply, deeply loved Absalom and wanted the kingdom for himself. Now, this rebellion was not a particularly long-winded uh, endeavor. The, the exile itself was only a few days, maybe weeks at most, Uh, And remember, Ahithophel uh, said Absalom should pursue quickly. You you know, go while he's weak. Go while he's uh, already down. Uh, But, of course, David had told um, Hushai to stay and, and, and counsel against whatever Ahithophel counseled. And so he did. He counseled Absalom to wait because, you know, David's men are angry and they're raging and they're ready for you. And so they did wait. And ultimately, that was what led to David's men being able to overtake them. Uh, and so this morning, we're going we're gonna to see what happens after that, what comes in the aftermath of that rebellion. Is, you know, the king and his men went across the Jordan into exile, and now it's time for them to return from exile. And so we're going to look at that this morning in chapter 19 and see what we can learn and hopefully apply to our own life uh, in light of these things. So chapter 19, we're starting in verse 9. If you remember, David went through uh, verse 8, so we're in verse 9. And all the people were arguing throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, The king delivered us from the hand of our enemies and saved us from the hand of the Philistines. And now he has fled out of the land from Absalom. But Absalom, who we anointed over us, is dead in battle. Now, therefore, why do you say nothing about bringing him back? It's a little bit hard to get a real sense of what's going on here, but if I could label it with one word, it would be confusion right? There's, there's arguing amongst the 12 tribes, and they're saying the king, and in the Hebrew, that, that word is emphasized, like the king, King David, the one who delivered us from the Philistines, the one who has saved us and, and, and fought against our enemies. Uh, you know, he, he, he fled Absalom, right? But, but Absalom, who then we appointed as king over us, well, he's dead. So now what? Why, why should we bring David back? Should, what should we do? And I I really think it's like a, uh, I've made a huge mistake moment, right? Like, we anointed this guy king, and he's dead. Now what? Right? Because this King David is also the one who earlier fought on our behalf and fought for us and took out the Philistines, took, uh, fought against our enemies. So what do we do? And they were arguing to figure it out. It didn't go well for them, and now they're figuring it out, uh, trying to amongst themselves. And in verse 11, we get into David's own response. And King David sent this message to Zadok and Abiathar the priest. Say to the elders of Judah, Why should you be the last to bring the king back to his house, when the word of all Israel has come to the king? You are my brothers, you are my bone and my flesh. Why then should you be the last to bring back the king? And say to Amasa, "...are you not my bone and my flesh? God do so to me and more also, if you are not commander of my army from now on in place of Joab." And he swayed the heart of all the men of Judah as one man, so that they sent word to the king, return both you and your servants. So the king came back to the Jordan, and, and Judah came to Gilgal to meet the king and to bring the king over to the Jordan." Now, the text doesn't exactly say why David sent word specifically to Judah and not all of the tribes since his word had gotten out to him, uh, but it's, he seems to appeal to, as uh, theologian Dale, uh, Dale Davis says, he appeals to their pride, their relationship, and their anxieties, right? He appeals to Judah specifically. He appeals to their pride by saying, you know, why would you, why would you be the last why would you be the last to say we should bring back the king? You should be the first, right? Don't you want to be the tribe that says we brought the king back? Why wouldn't you do that? He appeals to their uh, relationship. He says, you know, you, you are my own flesh, my own blood, my own bone. You are my brothers. I am from you. Finally, he appeals to their anxieties. And to do this, he appeals to Amasa. And Amasa was the commander of Absalom's army during the whole rebellion. And this may seem like a strange move to to put Amasa as commander of David's army instead of Joab, but uh, actually Absalom, Absalom had done the same. He had appointed Amasa over Joab, and so now David does the same thing. And again, we don't know all the reasons for some of this. We just get what we are given, but what we do know is that I think that he's trying to uh, display to the people of Judah that there should be no fear of retribution for the actions towards the king. If Hamas is going to be able to maintain his place and have importance and prominence in, in David's army, and even in spite of, oh, by the way, I led the army to fight against you under Absalom, if he should not fear retribution and what should go, you know, be coming to him, then neither should you. Don't be afraid of that. And of course, all of this seems to work as it says that the, the men of Judah, the hearts of the men of Judah were swayed as one man. They sent word to David for him and his servants to return. So, so with that, the men of Judah come down to Gilgal near Jericho at the Jordan. They meet David to bring him back to Jerusalem. Now, if you'll remember, when, when the exile happened and David was leaving, he actually had these three uh, these multiple encounters with, with people on the way out, right? And in the same way, He has encounters with people on the way back in. And so that's really the meat of our passage uh, this morning. He has three particular encounters that I I want us to look at. So pick it up in verse 16. Now, Shammai, the son of Gera, the Benjaminite from Baharim, hurried to come down with the men of Judah to meet King David. And with him were a thousand men from Benjamin. And Ziba, the servant of the house of Saul, with his fifteen sons and his twenty servants, rushed down to the Jordan before the king, and they crossed the ford to bring over the king's household and to do his pleasure. And Shemai the son of Gera fell down before the king as he was about to cross the Jordan and said to the king, "'Let not my lord hold me guilty, or remember how your servant did wrong on the day my lord the king left Jerusalem.'" Do not let the king take it to heart, for your servant knows that I have sinned. Therefore, behold, I have, come to, I have come this day, the first of all the house of Joseph, to come down to meet my lord, the king. And Abishai, the son of Zariah, answered, Shall not Shammai be put to death for this? Because he cursed the Lord's anointed. But David said, What have I to do with you, you sons of Zariah, that you should this day be an adversary to me? Shall anyone be put to death in Israel to this day? For do I not know that I am the king over all Israel? And the king said to Shammai, You shall not die. And the king gave him his oath. Now only a few weeks ago in chapter 16, we we meet Shammai, where he comes to David's party as they are leaving, and he starts throwing stones at David, and he starts cursing David, and throwing dust at him. he says, and he follows them, and he does this all the way to the Jordan. And Abishai, one of David's commanders, says, why should this dead dog curse my Lord, the king? And David says, basically, leave him alone, right? Whatever's coming to me now is is part of the discipline that comes from my sin and rebellion against the Lord. And who knows? Maybe the Lord will bless me by enduring the cursing that is coming. If he is cursing me, it's because the Lord has told him to do so which is really interesting. So then when we pick back up here in chapter 19, Shammai runs up and begs him, falls at David's feet, pleads for his life, says, I've sinned, begging him not to hold him uh, guilty for cursing him. He's confessing his sin before the king and hoping for a pardon. Now, we don't know if Shammai is sincere uh, or if he just doesn't want to die. Again, it could be one of those, I've made a huge mistake, kind of moments, right? We, we do things sometimes in our rebellion when things seem like we've got the upper hand, right? And it seems like that's where Shammai is. But now he recognizes that he doesn't want to die. See, Shammai was mad because the house of Saul, who was he, he was a part of, was, was, you know, because of Saul's sin, right? It wasn't David's fault. But that, that house is gone out of power, and David's house is in power, and Shammai is angry about that. And so I don't know if in a few days he had changed his mind or what, but he comes and and pleads for his life, life, says he has sinned against David. And Abishai, again, the same guy, gets up there and says, let me kill him, let me kill him, let me execute Shammai for his disrespect. But David's words are clear. He tells Abishai that he's acting like an enemy towards what is happening right now. Right? David literally repeats himself when he says, what have I to do with you, son of Zariah? And then he says, Shall anyone be put to death in Israel this day? Has there not been enough blood spilled over this? Do I not know that I am king over Israel? Do I need you, Abishai, to show me who's king? David's not threatened by Shammai. In fact, look at what he says in verse 23. He says, You shall not die. Now, where have we heard that before in this story? Right? Harken back to chapter 12. After David committed adultery with Bathsheba and had Uriah, her husband, killed in in battle, Nathan comes and presents that story, and David gets up and says, that man should be executed for that. And Nathan says, you are that man. And David falls down and says, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan, the Lord, through Nathan, tells David, the Lord has put your sin away, you shall not die. You shall not die. And this isn't the main point of all of this, but I think even in the midst of this great family turmoil, those words from the Lord had been whispering in David's ear, right? When Jesus talks about forgiveness in Matthew 18, he tells the the parable of the two servants and, and, and how the one servant who owes a great debt to the king comes and pleads for him. Please, please don't make me pay it. Don't send me away. And the king has mercy on him, forgives him debt, and sets him free. And then the same servant sees a guy who owes him a little bit, and he has him thrown in prison, and says, you will not see the light of day until every last penny is paid back. Right? And friends, we must have the perspective, when it comes to forgiveness, no matter how egregious someone has sinned against us, the fuel for our forgiveness is knowing and remembering what God has forgiven us of, right? We should all have been (laughs) executed for our sin, right? We should die for our sin against the Lord, right? Sometimes people sin against us in 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 a grievous, an egregious, an awful way, and yet the Lord says, You need to forgive that person. How in the world can we do that? We we can only do it when we remember that our sin costs Christ his life. Right? God chose to pour out his wrath against our sin upon Christ. How can we not then forgive that person? Right? And so David's words are fueled, his forgiveness for Shemai are rooted in the fact that God forgave David of a much more egregious sin than throwing dust and rocks at him right Throwing rocks and dust and throwing curses at him I mean it's not nice, but he didn't have your spouse killed right and so that has to be the fuel for us to to forgive anyone so that's David's encounter with Shammai. David's displaying his, his, his savvy wisdom, his, his pol- political know-how, and his heart, right? He is a man after God's own heart. He sinned greatly. He shows mercy to Shammai. That's encounter number one. Encounter number two comes in verse 24. And Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, came down to meet the king. He had neither taken care of his feet Nor trimmed his beard, nor washed his clothes from the day the king departed until the day he came back in safety. And when he came to Jerusalem to meet the king, the king said, Why did you not go with me, Mephibosheth? And he answered, My lord, O king, my servant deceived me. For your servant said to him, I will saddle a donkey for myself, that I may ride on it and go with the king. For your servant is lame. He has "'Slandered your servant to my lord the king. "'But my lord the king is like an angel of God. "'Do therefore what seems good to you. "'For all my father's house were but men doomed to death "'before my lord the king. "'But you set your servant among those who eat at your table. "'What further right have I than to cry to the king?' "'And the king said to him, "'Why speak any more of your affairs? "'I have decided you and Ziba shall divide the land.' And Mephibosheth said to the king, oh, let him take it all, since my lord the king has come home safely. Now, last we heard about Mephibosheth was a few weeks back when Ziba came and told David on the way out. That was one of the encounters that he had on the way out of the land. And he he said, Mephibosheth is is bad-mouthing you. He's slandering you. He's saying disrespectful things about you. And we know that from verse uh, 17 that Ziba had come down too, right, along with his 15 sons and 20 servants. He's, he's here, he's probably standing there while, while Mephibosheth has now shown himself and is telling this to the king, also thinking to himself, I've made a huge mistake. But David asked Mephibosheth, why didn't you evacuate with me? And Mephibosheth tells David that Ziba who David had commanded to care for Mephibosheth and help Mephibosheth, had saddled the donkey for himself and went and slandered Mephibosheth to David. This was no doubt a ploy to take advantage of the situation, to get what wasn't rightfully his. And again, now it seems like that plan could backfire big time. Mephibosheth had also made a vow not to care for himself until David returns. I didn't take care of my feet. I didn't trim my beard. I didn't wash myself or my clothing. And to us, that might seem just kind of nasty. But the reality is, it was a, a sign of mourning. Okay, Mephibosheth was signaling that I have lost my king. I am mourning, and I'm mourning until he comes back. Right? And so he is sad about David going into exile. Look at Mephibosheth's words again. But my Lord. The king is like an angel of God. Do therefore what seems good to you. For all my father's house were but men doomed to death, but before my lord the king. But you set your servant among those who eat at your table. What further right do I have to cry before the king? And this is where it, I think it's interesting, kind of hard to discern what's going on, but it seems from the outside that David may still not actually know. Was, it, was Ziba lying to me? Is Mephibosheth now lying to me? Which one is it? I think David knows, but David does something a little strange and I think kind of brilliant in two, two ways. He tells Mephibosheth and Ziba to divide the land, right? Because uh, I think it's smart for two reasons. One, first, David, when he says to Mephibosheth, you know, divide the land, what does Mephibosheth say? Take it, let him have it. Let him have it all. I don't care about the land. My lord, the king, has come back safely. I no longer have to mourn. My king is back, and I think it's very clear from his response that Mephibosheth doesn't care about the land and the stuff that the king can get him. He's care- concerned about the king. He is concerned about the king. He's telling the truth. It actually harkens a little bit, a little bit of a flash forward. I think the, this is an aside, but I think the author of Samuel is kind of brilliant, and I think he does all of these like, foreshadowings in the way he talks about things. You see even you know, seeds, a division of the kingdom in the future. But he, I think he does this, and Mephibosheth says, let him have it. It reminds me of, oh, I don't know, the next generation when the two women bring the baby to Solomon. What does Solomon say? Cut it in half. And the real mom says, no, 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 no. Let her have it. I'd rather that baby live, right? I think Mephibosheth is telling the truth. And I think, I don't know if David did it intentionally or what, but I think the truth is revealed through that act. Secondly, I think it's kind of brilliant because Ziba is is not a nobody, right? He's got 15 sons. He's got 20 servants. He had influence and probably some power uh, and influence, and David was not interested in starting another rebellion. The kingdom is is in turmoil and confused at best, right? There's a lot of tension going on, and David's not interested in stirring up trouble. He didn't want that. He wanted peace in his kingdom. He was being as wise as a serpent and as gentle as a dove, I believe. He was being both gracious and political. He wasn't giving anyone reason to rebel, and so David, I think, acts wisely in this encounter to ease tension, again, to have, uh, we're not looking to put anyone to death over here. We're not looking to stir up too much trouble. There will be a day for maybe that, but it is not today. And so he was endearing himself to the people. So that's encounter number two. Let's look at the final encounter, starting in verse 31. Now Barzillai, the Gileadite, had come down from Rogalim, and he went on with the king to to the Jordan to escort him over the Jordan. And Barzillai was a very aged man, 80 years old. He had provided the king with food while he stayed at Mahanaim, For he was a very wealthy man. And the king said to Barzillai, Come over with me. I will provide for you with me in Jerusalem. But Barzillai said to the king, How many years have I still to live that I should go up with the king to Jerusalem? I am this day 80 years old. Can I discern what is pleasant and what is not? Can your servant taste what he eats or what he drinks? Can I still listen to the voice of singing men and singing women? Why then should your servant be an added burden to my lord the king? Your servant will go a little way over the Jordan with the king. Why should the king repay me with such a reward? Please let your servant return that I may die in my own city near the grave of my father and my mother. But here is my servant, Haim. Haim. Let him go over with my lord the king and do for him whatever seems good to you. And the king answered, Haim shall go with me and I will do for him whatever seems good to you. And all that you desire of me I will do for you. Then all the people went over the Jordan, and the king went over, and the king kissed Barzillai and blessed him and returned to his own home. The king went on to Gilgal, and Kimhame went on with him. All the people of Judah and also half the people of Israel brought the king on his way. We actually have heard of Barzillai before in chapter 17, uh, when David and his men crossed the Jordan and ended up in Mahanaim. Barzillai, along with a few other guys, bring beds and food uh, to give rest to the weary soldiers. We don't know much more about this man, but he uh, is apparently a very wealthy man, but the king wants to repay him for his kindness. He says, why don't you come and stay with me in, the, in Jerusalem, be a part of the court, just I will take care of you, right? And Barzillai is an old, content man. He doesn't need anything, right? He tells David, thank you, but I'm good. <laughs> I'm good. I can't really distinguish what is pleasant and what is not, Right? What food? Food kind of tastes bland. I can't really hear singing anymore. Uh, I just kind of want to go home and and die where my family. Just be home. Just be home. And to be honest, the older I get, the more uh, I understand this. Right? Like, uh, you know, a few years ago, I I only have a handful of illustrations, but like a few years ago, when I was in my 20s, I was in this band, and in small circles, we were a big deal. And now last, two years ago, there was this festival, it's like, oh, we're bringing back all the big band, old big bands, right, and it was like, you know, thousands of people, and I, we got an invite to play this show, and I'm like, I'm 40, I don't know if this is a great idea, um, but whatever, and so the, the closer we got to it, it was just in Alabama, right, the closer we got to it, they're like, man, there's that, it's sold out festival, there's gonna be thousands of people there, glory days all over again, and I was just like, you know what, I think I'd rather, like, stay home, like, Watch golf with my family. Like, I'm good. You know. I And now, listen. We get out. We travel. We like to have fun. But I'm just like, you know what? No. I, I like to be home. Like I'm just becoming a homebody. And and you guys are chuckling because you know it's true, right? Like you all know. Like, eh. It's like beach day. That's like 30 minutes out there. It's hot. It's like, it's like sand stuff. It gets everywhere. I don't know. You know. Uh, that's, it's, it's, and so we understand Barzillai, right? We, we get it. But listen, he, does, he sends Kim Haim. Uh, he was probably one of his sons. He, he sends him, and he blesses David, and David blesses him and takes care of him. But, you know, Barzillai, he wasn't interested in the stuff. Like, he's got stuff. I, I just want I, I to go home. I want to be comforted. I, I, I'm just glad to see that you guys are taken care of, and you're going back to where you're supposed to be. Right? That's what's important to me. And you would think that even as as David goes in and it's a a happy time and there's a joyful time, that that's how our text concludes, but it actually starts, ends where we started in verse 41. And then all the men of Israel came to the king and said to the king, Why have our brothers, the men of Judah, stolen you away and brought the king and his household over the Jordan and all David's men with him? And all the men of Judah answered the men of Israel, Because the king is our close relative, why then are you angry over this matter? Have we eaten at all at the king's expense, or has he given us any gift? And the men of Israel answered the men of Judah, We have ten shares in the king, and in David also we have more than you. Why then do you despise us? Were we not the first to speak of bringing back our king? But the words of the men of Judah were fiercer than the words of the men of Israel. We're not going to spend a ton of time on this because this actually sets us up for where we're going next week uh, and what will happen, but Israel and, and the tribe of Judah are still arguing about their right to the king. Again, I think it foreshadows the divided kingdom that is coming uh, in two generations. And although, you, you, well, you can see that even now, and it says that the words of the men of Judah are fiercer than the words of the men of Israel. The, the word fierce me- means unyielding right? The men were not backing down. The men of Judah were were laying claim to the king and were not backing down. And again, next week we'll see what what this kind of unyieldingness and confusion can lead to. Uh, Heads up, it's another rebellion. So in our time remaining, I want us to focus on the two encounters that are in contrast to what is going on in Israel, right? The two encounters that David had again, Israel is in the state of confusion. Who, what should we do with the king? Should we bring him back? Like, the Absalom, like, we anointed him king, and, 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 and it's just confusion. There's a struggle for power. People are jockeying for position to see what piece of the pie they can get. However, two men, I think, are very clear that it's not what they can get, it's who they can get, all right? They aren't interested in what the king can do for them. They're just happy to have the king and him in his rightful place, and that is Mephibosheth, and Barzillai. In Mephibosheth's encounter with David, David says, look, or he says to David, everyone in my family was doomed to die, but you set me at your table. It was a great act of kindness. It wasn't necessary, and it went against the norms of what kings would do with families of the prior regime. It went against what probably Mephibosheth's own grandfather Saul would have done. Right? he tried to kill David. Why not? He, He was not interested in people vying for his throne. But instead, Mephibosheth gets to sit at David's table. Mephibosheth's only real desire is to have his king return safely to his rightful place. He's not interested in what David can get him. He's interested in David being restored. God's anointed to the throne should be on the throne, and that's what Mephibosheth was excited to see. And then you see with Barzillai, who saw David and his weary band of travelers show up in 17 at Mahanaim. They go out and they care for him, and there's men, bring beds and food. And now David wants to give back out of this overabundance of blessing and more, but Barzillai is, again, not interested. He has wealth, he has age, he has wisdom, but he wants to send David on his way. He wants to send him back. David is offering him blessing and care for the rest of his life, and Barzillai is saying, I'm good. I'm good. You go. You go be king. I'm good. You go do what you're supposed to do. He's glad to have cared for the king and to see the king is going back to his throne. God's anointed being king and being honored, but he's not interested in what David can get him. And in contrast to this, it seems everyone else uh, is interested in David's position. Am I going to get retribution? Am I going to get blessing and power? What, What can David do for them? Can he pardon me because of my huge mistakes? rather than just having God's anointed back as king. You have all the men of Israel, and, and, and at first, most of the men of Judah. It seems like they have come around towards the end, but even that was inspired by David's own words at the beginning. Right? David uh, had to do a lot of the convincing with Judah, but you've got Shammai wanting uh, pardon and Ziba trying to get the land. All these people who are trying to lay claim to the king, not for who he is, but really for what he can do for them. And friends, I feel like if we are not careful, we can quickly come to see God in this way. We can come and worship God not for who he is, but rather for what he can do for us. Right? We can be motivated to seek God and be drawn close to God more for what he can give or bring or make a way for rather than worshiping him just for who he is. And when this happens, we're really elevating the creation over the creator. And when we elevate the creation over the creator, we're going to have problems because guess what? The creation is going to decay and break down and crumble. And those problems often manifest in a few ways. We can usually see it in our, in our prayer life, uh, but we really see it, uh, or, or we're, I guess, drawn to it and seeing how we examine our prayer life and we go, oh man, I'm asking for this, I'm asking for this. And You know, God, God becomes, as, as some pastors will say, a cosmic genie rather than the creator and sustainer and Lord of the universe, right? So let me point out three, three ways that, that this can kind of manifest in our life. The first is when we don't get what we want, right? When we, get to, we don't get something that we want, we pray and we pray and God doesn't give us what we desire. And if we don't love God for who he is, then when this happens, especially if it happens multiple times, if it happens over and over, we can begin to develop this bitter heart, towards God, and to prayer, right? We begin to develop this heart that says, he's not going to answer me in the way I want. He's not going to answer me anyway. I mean, what's the point? I'm going to ask for this thing, but I don't know if it's going to happen. It never does, and sometimes it's maybe silly things, but what about when it's really important things? What about when someone might lose a job, or a home, or if someone's sick? I remember uh, a few years back, a, a good friend of mine, his daughter, uh, was diagnosed with an incurable brain tumor, and we prayed and we prayed and, and the community prayed and th- I mean thousands of people praying for this young girl and we prayed and we prayed and then we cried when that baby died. She wasn't a baby; she was seven, eight, nine years old. I don't remember exactly. Why didn't God answer that prayer? Right? That was that was a legitimate prayer. That's a good thing to desire, right? Sometimes when we pray and ask. Of God, and we don't get what we hope for, it can reveal that we might have a greater desire for what God can do for us rather than for who God is. Secondly, it might manifest in us when we get something that we desire and then it goes wrong. Right? I'm not talking about when we ask for something sinfully, I mean, that's not good ever. But when we've asked of the Lord, we sought the Lord, we've we, we sought wise counsel of pe- godly people, we, we think, man, God, the Lord is leading us this way, we have a peace about it, we move in that direction, you know, maybe it's a job, we, we, we sell the house, we pack up the family, we move away from our church, we move away from our people, we get there one week, and then the company folds. Right? Whoa, 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 Lord. Like, we, we prayed, we asked, we, we had peace, we knew that this is what you wanted us to do. How can this be of you? Why did you lead us into this? What, what's the point of this, right? Why did you move us here, God? And again, if we're not careful, this can reveal, it's okay to be confused, but it can reveal that maybe we desire what God has for us more than what, who God is. And although both of these two uh, instances involve suffering. It's really suffering in general that we see this manifest. Uh, when we're suffering and we love God for what He can give us rather than for who He is, then at best we could start to question God's goodness and character, and at worst we can reject Him for not for what He has done to us. But Friends, we have to remember we don't look at our situation and decide what we think about God, right? We don't look at our situation and decide, oh, God's character must be this because this has happened to us. No, we look at God. We look at the Word. We look at what, who, God's own words that t- He tells us who He is. He tells us what He is. He tells us His attributes and how He is. And then we decide what we think about that situation, right? We see that situation in light of who God is. Right? He doesn't act outside of his character. He is loving. He is just. He is all the things that he is, and that is how we view whatever situation we're into. And let me just be straight with you. When we elevate the gifts over the giver and the creation over the creator, that is idolatry, right? It is the worship of something other than God. There's nothing wrong with loving God's good gifts for us and being thankful for good days and where where peace and joy reign. Those are really great. You should be thankful for that. But you see, the glory of God is also greatly magnified when we worship Him for who He is even if we don't get what we want, even if we get what we want and it doesn't work out, even if we are suffering when we still worship God in the midst of that struggle. God is greatly glorified in that. Psalm 73, Asaph says, whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. In this world, there's nothing that I desire more than you, God. My heart and my flesh, it may fail. God, it can all go away as long as I have you, I have enough. As long as I have you, I will be sustained because you are the strength of my heart, God. You are enough. You are all I need. Everything else can go away. As long as I have you, I've got enough. And so where are we this morning, church? Where are we? Are you like those people who in their confusion and greed and in turmoil of the nation jockeyed for position to see what the king could get them? Or are you like Mephibosheth and Barzillai who just loved that God's anointed was doing what God's anointed was supposed to be doing. The king was serving as the king. The king's back. That's enough. I don't know what happens next, and that's okay, because God's anointed is doing what God's anointed is supposed to be doing. Who cares what I can get out of it, right? And that's where we want to be. That is where we want to, to, that that is what we want the world to see in us, right? That is why, you know, uh, things like the prosperity gospel and these, these, these false teachings about, you know, you love God, this will happen to you. That's, that's, that's an awful, awful disrespect to what the Bible actually says. The Bible is very clear that God is actually really, really, really glorified when we respond differently than the world does to our suffering because He is our anchor. He is enough to get us through no matter what. We don't need any of it. Take it all away. As long as we have God, we have everything we need and more. So in a minute, we're going to turn to uh, the Lord's Supper, and that's a very specific time in our service where we get to adore, reflect, and worship God for who He is. God chose to give us salvation through Christ. He didn't have to. When we were alienated from God, He chose to to save us and reconcile us, make atonement for our sins, to, to make us alive with Christ. He didn't have to, but He chose to because of who He is, because of His character, because of His goodness towards His creation. Everything else really doesn't matter. Are things still hard? Yes, but God is good, and He is enough. Are things good? Yes, they are, but they're not as good as God. He's enough, whether the good things are there or not. I have, if, I have, uh, if I have plenty, if I have nothing, take it all away. It doesn't matter. God is enough. And friends, it's not easy to get there, we are all striving to be that, to, to, to hold on more and more loosely to the things of this world, but during this time, this morning, as we take this cracker and this juice, let us just adore God for who He is and for what He has done for us and be thankful for Him. Right, as long as we have Him, we have enough, and this little cracker and this little grape juice, cup of grape juice, is designed by him to show us he is with us. He is enough. We need nothing else. We have all we need in him. That's where we want to be. Let me pray. Lord, thank you again for our time. Thank you for your word. Thank you for being you and being enough. Thank you for revealing yourself to us, to uh, giving your son for us, that we can know what is true so that we can be with you forever, for all eternity, that we can, we can cry like Asaph, that, that my heart and my flesh may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. That's where we want to be, Lord. And so as we take this cracker, as we take this juice, I pray that you would remind us of that, that you would remind us that it's not about what you give us. It is about who you are, and we want to worship you because of who you are. Some will have plenty, some will have a little. But as long as we have you, we have enough. We pray all this in Christ's name, amen. Uh, the servers can come down, they'll, they'll hand out the cracker and the juice, and uh, if we'll just hold it, and uh, we'll take, I'll come back up and we'll take it together once everybody has it.